0: James. We're almost through James. Continue to pray that the Lord would lead me to the next book that we would start to begin to go through. James chapter 5. We're just going to read the first six verses. And James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. May the Lord add a blessing to his word. You may be seated. Father, we now come before you in your word, and we pray, Father, that as we examine it, although, Father, addressing a time In the past, there's still real relevant application to what we're about to read. And so, Father, I pray that you would, by way of your Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts, ring truth of your word, write it on our hearts so that we may live in it in Jesus' name. Um, So now we're in chapter 5. And in the past couple of chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, we were weighing the difference between earthly wisdom and godly wisdom. And now James has somewhat changed his focus within his letter. And as I stated several times, James' letter is to the churches. It's to believers that are dispersed. And within it, there are over 54 admonishments or imperatives. And so James' letter is a very direct letter. And that's the one thing that I like about James, is that he's direct. And as a half-brother of Jesus, there's no doubt that he was heavily influenced by his brother. And I think you can see that influence in his letter. What I really enjoy about James is he tells it like it is. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't soften the blow or compromise his message because he is concerned about how it will be received. But he does it in such a way that you can tell that he's a true pastor because he cares for the people who are receiving this letter. And the Scriptures this morning are no different. Now, in order to put some context to our verses, we know James is writing to the church, verses 1, but... Within verses one through six, James is addressing what many scholars to believe are non-believers, the rich, whoever may occasionally visit the church, as we see earlier in James's letter, where they would show favoritism by the wealthy person coming in, and how would they know they're wealthy by their garments and their rings, and they would find them the best places in the church. Or maybe they're just outside, and in fact, one of the scholars believes that what James is doing here is he's doing a rhetorical type of writing, and it's called a device, it's called uh, an apostrophe, not like we understand it today, where he turns away from his intended audience and is now speaking to a different audience that's not there. Now, he's probably doing this for a couple of reasons. One is, eventually what he says is going to reach the ears of the intended audience but it's also for the benefit of the church in whom he is addressing. Additionally, James is warning those within the church who are able to increase their wealth and that they're not to do it in an ungodly way, but the way that is good and pleasing to the Lord. Now, obviously, we're talking about money this morning talking about wealth. Your Bible might have warning to the rich rich, or some other subtitle for this specific uh, place of text. And I think it's important that we understand a little few things about money. First is money in and of itself is not evil. We all need money to live. We all need money to provide for our families. We have jobs in order to do that. And we pray that we're being paid a fair wage from those who employ us. And there's nothing wrong with estate planning. And there's nothing wrong with putting some money away for retirement so as to not be a burden to your children when you get older. And when I was talking to a good friend of mine who is very focused on money, and we were talking about how much does one need in order to retire? And he threw out a figure that kind of surprised me. And I said, "Uh, my figure's not that high. (laughs) I don't look at retirement as walking a Sandy Beach in white linen while a white horse rides by. That's not me. That's not me. Uh, Traveling the world, I like to travel, but my retirement is not going to be how many countries I can visit. My retirement, in fact, I I can't even begin to tell you when I'm going to retire. Because I think, you know, I'd taken a couple weeks off for vacation, and I'm about went nuts. And so I like to stay busy, I like to stay working, but it's okay to plan for retirement as long as it's within the proper boundaries and content of not focusing on wealth. And it seems there's two extremes in the church. On one extreme, they say that as children of God, we should be prosperous in every way, to include money and materialism. We hear that as the prosperity gospel. Satan has robbed you, and you need to go get what's yours. Mm. But then there's also the other belief that says any storm, any storehouse of wealth is evil. Mm. That's not true either. Because the Bible doesn't speak against wealth as specifically an evil. In fact, listen to 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Let me read that again. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. If you place money as a priority in your life above Christ, you're in trouble. And in the rest of that verse, it says, and through this craving, greed, wanting more, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know what that's saying? When you focus on money, you're taking your focus on the Lord, and you're going to compromise your faith. You're going to compromise your walk. There's nothing wrong with being smart and planning. Nothing wrong with being smart and investing. But when it becomes... As I'll talk about later, your God, that's when you're in trouble. Money isn't evil. Craving it beyond contentment, that's where we get in trouble. For we are to be content with all things. Are we not? And if we're not, then it will lead us astray. And we'll find ourselves exactly in this text as the audience of what James is saying, if we do. So let's examine the text and understand it a little bit better. Verse one, come now, you who are rich. Come now, you who are rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Again, James calls it like it is. He doesn't hold back. His condemnation of the oppressive rich Now, what's interesting here is James does not call them to repentance, which I found was interesting in my study. He simply gives them the impending judgment that will come upon them. And the weep and the howl that he uses here in the same word used to describe those who weep as a result of a loss of a loved one, of someone who has died, And so what this shows us is that when judgment comes, they will weep not because they realize the error in which they live, but because they're losing everything they have. I know people who have been given a very short time to live and they were more focused on their earthly wealth and its dispense after they leave than the short period of time they have on this earth, and that soon they will be facing their Lord. When my mom was diagnosed with cancer and we we fought it as long as we could, she fought it as long as she could, and everything that she stored up, she was a miser, she saved every penny. I used to joke all the time, Dad, if you stand still for five minutes, you're going to be put in that deep freezer and we're going to find you 30 years from now. She saved everything. She wasn't a hoarder, but she saved everything she knew that she needed because she grew up extremely poor, extremely poor. And and so when she got her diagnosed, and they basically said, there's nothing else we can do. My mom let go of all that that she was holding on to. It didn't matter anymore. And it shouldn't take us to be within six months of our life to let go. I love what Alistair Begg says, what the Lord has put in your hand, don't clench it in a fist. We know that all that we receive, all that we have comes from him. Amen? And these people that James is talking to may be so connected to their wealth that when they lose it, they howl and they weep. As if they lost someone close to them. As if their possessions and their wealth are more important than the people in their life. And that should never be the case. You remember the story in Luke chapter 12 where the man yelled out from the crowd, Lord, please tell my brother to give me some of that inheritance that we were supposed to have. Obviously, the brother kept it all. He must have been the executor of the will. And he's thinking maybe Johnny doesn't deserve anything. And so this man calls out the injustice to Jesus as if he would fix the situation. And basically Jesus told him, what do you think, I'm your arbitrator? No. But isn't that something? One of the saddest things to ever see is when siblings fight over an inheritance. I have cousins who will not speak except through a lawyer. I grew up. They were tight. They loved each other. And as soon as my uncle died, and he was quite wealthy, they started fighting over everything. And now they won't even talk to each other without a lawyer. When my dad died, obviously my mom died first, then my dad My brother was the executor of the will, and so he started dividing it up as per my father's instructions. And I kept getting letters in the mail from lawyers. Are you satisfied with the dispersion of the inheritance? Are you satisfied? Yes. Yeah. So I called my brother and I said, please explain to me why I keep getting these letters from lawyers asking me if the disbursement of my father's inheritance is agreeable, Is, is, is... Equitable. And he goes, Tim, when I talked to the lawyer, I was getting the same letters. He said, Tim, when I got those letters, I called him up and I said the same thing. Why you got-? He goes, because you guys are not the norm. You guys haven't fought over anything. And, and praise the Lord, my family never, ever fought over anything. Whatever my father decided to do, with his wealth, that's up to him. It's not mine. It's his. He worked hard for it. He lived hard for it. Not me. And I was very blessed that we didn't do that, having seen my cousins and what they were going through. But that's what money does to people, unfortunately and sadly. Now these words are also, these words weep and howl are also used for remorse as to how they lived in their wealth. Remember the story I shared last week. Again, in Luke chapter 12, where the rich fool who had a bounty of crops and he didn't have enough to store it. So what did he do? He hired some people to build more barns so we can have more stuff. And once he got it up there and he's like, oh, it's great. Now I can just relax and enjoy the fruits of my labor. And he had no idea that that day he was going to be face-to-face with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The brevity of time. We could spend our whole life seeking, working to gain the riches of this world. And at the very end, well, there's... I think one pastor said it, there is never a U-Haul behind a Hertz. There isn't. What you leave behind is going to be divvied up and either given to the state or your children or other relatives or however you decree it. You're not going to be carrying it with you into the afterlife. Remember what Jesus said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We have to come to a point in our thinking that this life on this earth is so brief that we need to spend our time in godly pursuits and not worldly pursuits. And I guarantee you, as you get older, like me, age 50, you, amen, that's what you're supposed to say. You're going to focus more on what this life is really for than when I was 21 and I thought I was gonna live forever. We should never live so connected to possessions and wealth that our greatest concern is for them versus our life in Christ. And it can happen very easily. Todd and I were driving to, you've heard this story before, Todd and I were driving to a football game and we were talking about how blessed we were in our employments. And we said, and you know what? When you think about it, you're like, okay, we're just so blessed by how much money we make and all this stuff. And, and all of a sudden it was like, and then there are times when it's not enough. And I said, isn't that sad? And we were both agreement. That's sad how your mind and your heart goes. It's never enough. The accumulation of stuff is never enough. You have to be on guard with that. You have to guard your heart from that. Because if you don't, that's exactly how you're going to live. You're going to live to gain more money, more riches. Now let's look at verse 2 and 3. James continues, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire you laid up treasure in the last days. Now here in verse 2 and 3, James highlights what made people rich in the time of this letter, and it was in the possession of things. It was the garments that they wore and the gold and silver that they possessed. That was the mark of wealth in the time of of James. And so as it relates to possessions, that would be anything from barns to hold crops, homes, any kind of other possession, livestock, property that they might own. And what's interesting is not much has changed. In the world in which we live, we tend to look at the possessions of things as a meaning or an identification of worth. Oh, look at that guy's house. Man, he's got a boat, a fifth-wheeler, and an F-250 to pull all that. He must be doing pretty good for himself. Well, I can hear to tell you right now, I, every time I do a background investigation for anybody in the military or anybody going into government service, we do a credit report. We take all three, combine them together, and we look at their finances because finances is the easiest way to be blackmailed. And I can tell you, Don't think because that's a big house, fifth-wheeler, boat, and an F-250. A lot of people are in debt way over their head just so that they can own the things they think this world feels they need to have. And it's amazing to me. You know, my son, when he bought his first house, he said it was a good starter home. And I said, Seth, somebody raised a family of two in this house. It wasn't a starter home to them. It was their first home. It was built in the 40s, I think. It was their first home. And they probably lived there. And their children grew up there. And so, But that's, that's the mentality that we have today. It's a good starter home. Then I'll move to a bigger home. And then when I get to that one, then I'll move to the bigger one after that. There's nothing wrong with having a home. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with selling one and building one. But if it's continuously to have something bigger and better when what you have is sufficient, are we content? Are we content? Now, Tim Knudsen is a realtor. He's going, Tim, Tim, knock it on. <laughs> <laughs> He said, you're my bottom line here. <laughs> I'm just saying that we should be content with what we have. We should be content with what we have. When I grew up, we lived in a small house in Tioga where my brother and I not only shared the same room, but we shared the same bed. It wasn't until I was 13 and we moved to Wofford that I got my own room and my own bed. I didn't think we were poor. I didn't think anything of it. I thought that was just the way it was. Possessions should never be a measure of success, possessions should never be a measure of your self worth. You know, I talk to people all the time like in my job and we could talk about DUIs and we could talk about criminal history. We could talk about things that they did in the past that they're embarrassed about, but they're not, they don't have a problem talking about it. But as soon as I go to finances, their head goes down, they look at the floor and they're completely embarrassed. And the only thing I could think of as to why that is is because we put so much of our self-worth in what we are worth materialistically that if that's not right, That if we're in debt, or we had bankruptcy, or we lost a car in repossession, it affects how we see ourselves and value ourselves. Your value is in Christ, not in the possessions of this world. And that's how Satan gets his hooks in us. If I can get them to value themselves in something other than Christ, I got them. Don't do that. Now, the term rotted can mean to be dissolved over time, but it also means to become worthless. Look, what we possess is most certainly will rot and decay and lose value over time. I love to go down when I hunt. I always love to go look at old farmsteads. You know the old buildings? You see them all over the state of North Dakota, right? Because there's a story there. There's a story of a family that homesteaded there, got their 160 acres, Worked it for how many years and so they could keep the land. They built, a, they built a barn probably first. In fact, I wish John was here, but John told me the story of his father, his grandfather, I think. Yeah, grandfather, if I got it wrong, then John can correct me later. But his grandfather, the first thing he built was a grain house and a barn. And his grandfather slept in the grain house the first winter he was there with his wheat. And then later they built the house that John has on their property now. There's a story there with farmsteads, but guess what? You look at some of these farmsteads, it's decayed, it's rotted, it's of no value. And those that were original homesteaders, time has since forgotten them. You might find a neighbor that said, oh yeah, that's the old Gustafson place or the Olson place, but they're of no value. That was somebody's heaven on earth at one time. And now it's just rotted buildings. Everything we possess will rot away. It will decay over time. Listen, the dump is full of things we thought we needed. And the junkyard is filled with cars and trucks we thought we couldn't live without. All things perish over time. We should never put our faith in such things. Listen to Luke 12, 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Another mark of wealth that they had back then was garments. Now these garments were not normal garments. These were heavily ornate and hand-sewn, made of the best materials, and we see that that's what they were wearing in chapter two. It was fine silk and it showed wealth. It's no different than today. When I found out some of the movie stars or famous people or rich people pay $100 for a monogram t-shirt because it comes from a specific designer, I'm like, what? $100 t-shirt, $500 jacket? shoes, and you need a closet just for your shoes? Some of these outfits aren't even worn twice. Oh, I can't be seen in public wearing that a second time. (laughs) Heavens forbid. But we're no different. How many clothes do we have in our closets right now that we don't need? How many quarter zips can a guy have one more, just one more. That's it. I'm addicted to quarter zips. I don't know why, but my, every time I go, "Hey, Dara, look at this." No, <laughs> she's like, "You have enough quarter zips." I don't know what it is about quarter zips. I like them. Oh. They're all blue. <laughs> but we're in a materialistic society, and sometimes what we wear, we want to present to other people who we are. But is that who we really are? Do you feel comfortable around people if you don't have brand name wear? We don't need that. Our identity is not in that. Clothe yourself with Christ. That's who you are, not what shirt you're wearing. And James says that these garments will be mothy. Now, that's kind of interesting. Let's break that down. How can they be mothy? Well, back then they had several garments that they would wear, and they would put them in some kind of a closet, what we would call a closet today, and plug because of the heat and the high humidity, little larvae will attach to them and start eating them. And once they did that, they were ruined. Conversely, the laborers maybe had one, maybe two garments. They didn't have closets. They wore their garments until they wore out, and then they would either mend them or replace them. And so it's interesting that even back then they had closets full of clothes, expensive clothes. But remember what Jesus says, do not worry about what you will wear. The Lord knows you have need of them. You know, it amazes me when I see these mission videos of these poor countries in Africa and other places in the world and kids are running around with Nike shirts and Adidas shirts and Puma shirts. You know where those come from? Donations from people like you. And so God takes care of everybody. We do sometimes we do it here. We used to do it all the time. Hats and gloves and mittens for winter goes to the homeless coalition. God satisfies the needs of others through us. So we shouldn't worry about what we will wear. Now it goes on to gold and silver, which will corrode. Right? They don't rust. Your Bible might say rust, but that's just making a point. It's corrosion. And they will corrode over time. They will tarnish. And what G- James is saying here is that the, in the time of judgment, their gold and silver that they stored up and they've hoarded for themselves will be of no value when their soul is required. You cannot buy salvation. It has no bearing. And so James is saying to the unrighteous rich that no matter their riches, no matter their property, no matter their garments, no matter their gold and their silver, they have no value and cannot save you from the impending judgment that's coming as a result of how you've gained your wealth and how you hold it. The only thing that can save them from this judgment is Christ. Is Christ. but they can't see him because they're blinded by their riches. Listen, brothers and sisters, wealth is a powerful God, small g. Unlike carven wood, chiseled stone, or fashion idols, wealth can provide in the minds of those who possess them the security, the safety, and the peace that they would normally seek from a relationship with God. But it is a lie. It is temporal. And it gives no one any advantage in salvation. That's why wealth is so dangerous if we don't hold it in its true value. Because it will blind you. Because it will provide you what you seek from God in a temporal way. but not in an eternal way. And all of this will lend to the eating of the flesh. Now what James means here is that their wealth goes, so do they. As their wealth deteriorates, so does their lives because they are so connected to it. And the fire symbolizes the anguish that will come by it. You know, one of the saddest things that I heard was when the stock markets fell and I think, 2008. And then all the times that the stock markets fell and great wealth was lost, you would hear the story of a suicide because somebody lost everything they had. How sad. How sad that their wealth was such an identifier that after losing it, life mattered not. And now they're going to live in that for eternity. Let us not be us. Additionally, James says, you have laid up treasures in the last days. They laid them up. They laid up their riches, stored them up. Instead of helping others around them that need help, they hoarded their wealth. Now, there's probably some, as some scholars believe, everybody felt that Jesus was coming back soon, right? And they understood and when he come back, it's going to be turmoil. He even, Jesus himself said, as it was in the days of Noah's house, she be the second coming of the Lord. There's going to be trouble. And what they were doing is hoarding up their wealth in order to survive the tribulation. I was listening to a pastor this week, and he actually had an indictment on those. He, he comes from Central Oregon. And he had an indictment on, on some of the people in his church. He said, and I know some of you out here are preppers. And you're prepping for the tribulation as if it's up to you to survive that period of time so you're hoarding your wealth and you're hoarding your things. He said, don't do that. That's not biblical. Who's your savior? Your bunker or Jesus? It was pretty quiet when he was talking to him about that. But nonetheless, it's true. There may be some that put away everything they can. So when that tribulation comes, they 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 can survive it. Brothers and sisters, there's much more to be doing than hoarding your wealth before the time of the Lord. There are unsaved people who do not know Jesus. That's what you are to be about, is living a life for Christ and reaching the lost so they don't suffer eternally. But listen to what 1 Timothy, in relationship to this, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, says, and this is Paul writing to Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, proud about their will, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Boy, is that not true in the day in which we live today? With the stock market, the volatility, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Where are you investing? In this life or the next? In this life or the next? Verse 4, Behold, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back for fraud and crying out against you, and the cries of the harvest have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now James here reveals those who are rich earned their wealth, and he has his first charge against them because their wealth was obtained by ill-gotten gain. By ill-gotten They stole it. They took it from somebody else. How did they do that? Well, back in those days, day laborers were the economy. They would stand in the marketplace, and they would be hired to go out and work in the fields. We see the same exact story as Jesus told it in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 through 18, where this man hired the parable, the man hired day laborers to go out and work in the field. And they would be agreed upon a wage, and at the end of the day, they would be paid, and then they would take that, and that's how they made their living. There was no unions. There was no employment. You know, there was no, what do you, what do you call that? When uh, I just lost the word. So what happens when you're 50. Anyway, um, ish. <laughs> but what was happening here is they were hiring them, sending them to the field, and then through some technicality, not paying them. Oh, you didn't meet your quota. You're supposed to have six boxes of fruit. Oh, you didn't do this. Oh, you broke that, so I'm going to have to deduct that from your pay. They found every little angle they could to keep back the wage for the work that they did. And that's how they made a lot of their money, through ill-gotten gain. And these cries from these laborers were so pronounced that it reached the ears of our Lord. Now, this is an injustice. I think we would all agree with that. A worker is due his wage. But understand, God knows. God is fully aware. God understands your situation. God sees and God will act. So many times in the face of injustice, we feel isolated and alone as if nobody understands, nobody can help, nothing's going to happen, I'm just going to be taken advantage of, and that's just the way it's going to be. And yet James is saying, take comfort. God sees, God hears, he knows the injustices, and he will act. No one escapes the discipline or judgment of God. Nobody. And this is why James uses the term Lord of hosts, which is a very interesting term. That's what the ESV uses it. But what does it really mean? Well, in the Hebrew, it means Sabaoth. Sabaoth. Now, some would say that this must mean the Lord of the Sabbath. No. Sabaoth is one of those most majestic titles of God of Israel and not only expresses His majesty, but His power. And the word oath or the Lord of Sabbath means the armies of God here on earth as in Israel and in heaven that go forth and do the bidding of God. And what he's saying here in this verse is don't think that they got away with it because the Lord Sabbath is going to hold them accountable to the injustice that they have befallen upon you. Now that's a very strong term is that God will send His army to right the injustice of those that have been afflicted. And that should give us great comfort that, the God, that God knows. He's aware and He will deal with it whether it's in this life or the next. And you better hope He deals with it in this life because if He doesn't, there won't be a next for them. But most feel, even as Christians, that we must act when this injustice comes. We must right the wrong. We must fight and respond and demand and act out against our oppressors. Now, there are times we must raise our voice in order to be heard and face injustice the way that glorifies God like Martin Luther King did with nonviolence, raising up the issues, making a discussion happen, and use the system to bring about justice, but we're not to respond to injustice as if we are God. We must not take our own vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We must not execute our own in, our own justice. We know the Word of God says that it's better to be wronged and trust in the justice of God who sees all and knows all and not allow an injustice to go unanswered rather than to act in a worldly way towards injustice with violence. Don't respond evil with evil. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Now what is interesting here is in such of a treatment of day we were strictly prohibited by the law. In Leviticus 19, 13, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of hired workers shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You're supposed to pay them at the end of the day. That was Hebrew law, and the people in the church would have known that. Most likely, these men were withholding these wages because of technicalities to get over the law, to get around it, to skirt around it. And you know, nothing's really changed. My son works part-time for a contractor and he builds houses, he builds all kinds of stuff. And he was building a house out of town and which 50% is required down. So they paid 50%, 50% and as they were building the house, the lady who was buying the house or having the house built says, I want this change, I want that change, I want this change, I want that change after the agreed upon contract. And he said, that's going to cost more money, the changes you want in your kitchen. She, okay, that's fine. So they finished the house. They came in. They accepted it, and they seen the final bill, and it was more than the original quote, and they wouldn't pay him. They took him to court. And now he has to pay lawyers, his time, he's out his materials, and everything else. And he says, that's one of the hazards of being a contractor. Now, I understand when somebody does a poor job, they should be held accountable for it. But I know this man, I know his work, and I trust his work. I've seen his work. I've hired him. And I couldn't believe that people would do that and to drag it out in courts. More, most times, he doesn't get the money. During the oil boom in Watford, there was a high demand for local contracts. Handyman. You know, like people, hey, can you put this window in? Can you put this door in whatever? Can you build me a deck? But because everybody's working in the oil field for $30 an hour, there wasn't a lot of those people. So out-of-staters came in and said, yeah, we'll build you a deck in one day. Give us 50%. They got 50% and never heard from them again. When I went down there and did a background investigation on one of the individuals, one of the children of one of these contractors that did that, they said, when you find out where he's at, you let us know because we'll put a warrant out for his arrest. Couldn't believe people do that. This should never happen. That's theft. We should never do it to somebody and it should never happen to us. And so James, in the strongest terms, warns the rich, the unrighteous rich, the people that are doing this, that their injustices are going to have to be answered for. Verse 5, you have lived on worth. This is the second charge that he has against him. You have lived on earth with luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Person. How does he does not resist you? Sorry about that. Here in verse 5, we see the second charge against the rich and the first being withholding of the wage. And within the second charge, James is addressing how they are living in relationship to their wealth by theft. In luxury. Now, luxury in and of itself is not a sin because the word used here in the Greek that was translated from the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament in Hebrew, is the same word used by Nehemiah and Isaiah to describe a life of abundant and ease that God provides. But when it's combined with the second word, self-indulgence, we get a real vivid picture of the selfish pleasure in abundance of the things and how they were living in relationship to them. They were so consumed by their wealth and their desire to live in comfort and excess that they turned a blind eye to those who were in need. And they also turned a blind eye to their own impending judgment. Extravagant and self-indulgent life can blind a person to their fate and to the plight of others. In Luke chapter 16, we read this. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, and covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and may none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses, they have the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convicted or convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's a telling story told by Jesus as a parable of the finality of death and how we ought to live this life. Don't be blinded to the comforts of this world, the things of this world, or the substance of this world. Our life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow, eternity is forever. And how you live and in whom you live today will determine the next. Now, when James says you have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you, he levies the third charge against the wealthy. Now, most believe James is figuratively when he's talking about murder. He's not talking actual murder, but certainly it could mean indirectly because without the wage, they don't have the means to live. They could suffer sickness. They they could suffer poverty. They could suffer hunger. And additionally, the law addresses this injustice to the poor, and yet it happened with frequency because the rich controlled the courts. The poor did not have the money to go to court, and the court did not look after the injustice of the poor, even though the law said they had to. And we see it today. One of the ways the rich, and the political today, Robin still is through the courts. If you have money and good lawyers, the poor have little chance in court, if any. They can hire really good lawyers and drag the case through court until the resources of the poor are exhausted. That's actually a strategy. That is why lawsuits within the church should never happen between members as Paul admonishes, they should be litigated by spiritual leaders in the church. Now, James identifies those whom injustice is being levied. It's righteous person who does not resist you. Here, James not only identifies the victims of injustice, but how they are handled in the injustice by way of their faith. Again, the segment of Scripture is being written towards the rich, but it also has a benefit for us in encouraging us that this should never be us inflicting this on the poor. But also if it is us on the receiving end, that we rest in the comfort in knowing that God is in control. And in this third charge, we're seeing the end result of their actions. Their theft of wages, their luxurious and self-indulgent living, their condemnation and murdering of the righteous is plainly evident to the Lord of hosts, and directly condemned by His word, and James's letter to him. Proverbs 22:16: "Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty." Listen, no one can serve two masters. Split loyalty. And money can easily become our master. So as we could see, James has a very direct and harsh rebuke towards the unrighteous rich and how they live their life and wealth, how they accumulate it, and how it affects other people. And James condemns it. And he rebukes it. For what it is, it's abuse, excess. So then, what can we take away from these verses, given the fact that we no longer live in a predominantly day labor economy? What are we to take away from what James is saying to us? Well, I think there's a few things we could take away. First, we must always remember that wealth we receive is from the Lord, and we are to be good stewards of it. And it is to be used in a manner that glorifies God, aids our brothers and sisters and the less fortunate, and not to be hoarded until the last days. Additionally, we are not to be so connected with our wealth, it's part of our identity. We should never be validated by our wealth. to the point where the thought of losing it would cause us to howl, that would cause us to weep. And finally, for those who have felt the sting of injustice and not being paid or cheated out of what you have, take heart. The Lord Sabaoth is fully aware and He will right the wrong, either in this life or the next. Now next week, we're going to look at how we handle that on the receiving end in verses 7 through 12. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Although, Lord, this was written, this segment of text was written to the unrighteous rich, there's things that we need to take away from it, Lord. And I think you've said them. And, I've, and I hope we heard them. You are the giver of wealth. You're the giver of the things that we have. All that we have comes from you. All that we have, we are to be stewards of. Father, I pray that we are good stewards of that which you've given us. Let us keep the right perspective on the riches that you've given us and the wealth that we obtain from you, and let us use it to your glory, to your honor, to your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Please stand with us as we...